And today we are thinking about this idea. Strangers become shepherds. Strangers become shepherds. We are reading verses five and six. Strangers will stand and feed your flock and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. You will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations and you will boast in their riches. Let's pray. And so, Father in heaven, we, as your people, just ask this morning for your Holy Spirit to come and reveal Jesus to us through your word, we pray. Meet with us, Lord. Speak to us. Encourage us. Strengthen us. Send us into the harvest fields. I thank you that you've saved us, that we might become the people you've destined for us to be. I thank you you've got a great mission for your people. We get to join you on your mission to speak to the world about the wonderful person, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You're here with us today. You're here. And so, Lord, I pray, please would you stir our hearts to love and worship you. Help me to speak your word faithfully. In your holy name I pray, amen. So a very quick overview of this text. You would have heard the words strangers and foreigners. The picture that we have here is that there are a far off, distant, strange, foreign people that the Lord is not only gonna draw near, but is then gonna commission to become shepherds, vine dressers, and plowmen. And so this is a a picture of how God is gathering from the nations of the world a people to belong to him and to be used by him in service of his people. That strangers will become shepherds. That those who are currently far off will be brought near and will be commissioned by him. This is, of course, speaking about the church. And the church of God is made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And it certainly will be that around the throne of Jesus Christ, every people group will be represented. This is a work that God is faithful to accomplish. Now, I wonder, has anyone here done a genealogy or a family tree? Anyone done it? A few nods, a few hands. Um, Let me tell you this story. This happened to my uncle. My uncle, uh, who is a blaber, uh, determined that he was going to do our family tree. He's like, I'm going to find out something of our our history. Uh, You probably don't know many blabers. It's a slightly unusual surname. Um, And so my my uncle determined this is what he was going to do. And so um, he was going off on a business trip to Cuba. And as he's on this flight, he noticed that the chap sat next to him was thumbing through a genealogy in a, in a family tree. You know, he's kind of subtly kind of <laughs> trying to see what he was reading, and he noticed that's what he had. So he struck up a conversation with him, and he said, um, 
sorry, I, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I noticed that you've got a family tree there. I'm actually really interested in doing my family tree. Would you mind if I take a look? This chap said, of course, no problem. So he handed him the paper that he was uh, reading. And to my uncle's shock, it was the Blaver family tree. <laughs> and he found his name on it. What are the chances of that happening? Astonishing. Right, here's the thing. In heaven, there is a family tree. And it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And you'll find your name in it if you believe in Jesus Christ. And you'll find that every other name is a family member of yours. That's an incredible thing to think about. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And Jesus says, rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in your activities and in your even in your ministry labors. He said this to the disciples after they'd come back from performing miracles. And he said, even the demons are us. He said, don't rejoice in those things. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Rejoice that you are known by God. We find ourselves family members. We find ourselves not only one to another here, but we have family in China and Azerbaijan and Iceland in you name it. And every possible people group included. There is no room for racism, for prejudice, for classism. It's a complete nonsense to this whole idea of God gathering a people from the ends of the earth. So the question is, how do we go from being estranged to being family? And we're going to think about this together this morning. I want to just turn to Jeremiah chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verses 15 through to 19. And I want you just to notice the parallels with the passage that we've just read in Isaiah 61. Jeremiah 5. I'm about to bring a nation from far away against you, house of Israel. This is the Lord's declaration. It is an established nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know and whose speech you do not understand. Their quiver is like an open grave. They are all warriors. They will consume your harvest and your food. They will consume your sons and your daughters. They will consume your flocks and herds. They will consume your vines and your figs. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. But in those days, this is the Lord's declaration, I will not finish you off. When people ask, for what offense has the Lord God done all these things to us? You will respond to them, just as you abandoned me and served foreign gods in your land, so will you serve strangers in a land that is not yours. Now we've said this many times. When we read the Bible, there are several 
layers of meaning that, that we're reading. We can read this historically as a description of events that have taken place. And so historical reading of what is happening here relates to the Israelites before they're taken into exile in Babylon. And so God's people were increasingly abandoning God for idols and idolatrous worship. And, and the prophets would come to them and would speak to them and would challenge them with their behaviors and would and urge them to repent. Turn back to God, for devastation will come. And the prophets were speaking these things. And, and how did the people react? Oh, I don't want to listen to this. This Jeremiah is a terrible preacher. We want to hear something that's going to feel better, help us feel better about ourselves. I mean, that's literally what happened. So in verse 31 of the same chapter, it says this, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own authority. My people love it like this. And then verse 10, see, the word of the Lord has become contemptible to them. They find no pleasure in it. So this is what's happened. God's people have abandoned God's word. God's word has become contemptible. We don't like God's word. We reject God's word. Preach to us things that we will enjoy hearing is what the people are saying. And the challenge is going out from the prophets and saying, unless you turn back to God, here's what's going to happen. This foreign nation's going to come. And this people who are strange to you are going to come and invade your nation. And they're going to consume your food. They're going to take your flocks. They're going to take your herds. They're going to take even your sons and your daughters. Unless you turn back to God. Here comes the, the warning. Turn back to God. He's your protector. He's your provider. He's the one that loves you. Because where you're heading is a dangerous place. You're heading somewhere. Ultimately, that will cause your death. And this did happen for the Israelites. The Babylonian Empire came. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies came and took God's people and ransacked the temple and brought devastation. But God had warned them. And even here it says, you'll, you'll say to one another, why has the Lord let this happen? What are you doing, God? Why have you let this happen? And he will say, you abandoned me. You abandoned me. I appealed to you. I warned you. I urged you. Now, let me ask you this question. How do you think the word of God is viewed today in our society and in our nation? With contempt? How faithful has the church in our nation been to the word of God over years, recent years. Faithful, committed, submitted. You go, well, there are just some very difficult passages in the Bible. But there have always been very difficult passages in the Bible, right? And for 2,000 years, the church has wrestled with difficult passages in the Bible. 
And for 2,000 years, the church has agreed on a body of doctrine and on truth. But the challenge comes when those values and, those under, and that understanding of God's word becomes contemptible or begins to challenge the values and sensibilities of a modern society. And at that point, the church says, oh, have we got it right? Does God's word really teach these things? Is God's word wrong? Should we, should we still be teaching these things? It feels a little unkind. And so, and so we as, as Christians, if we stick to God's word, get called unkind, bigots. And so in our nation today, where we are completely confused by so many things, the challenge is, will we be those that stand as shepherds? The word of God became contemptible to them. And so they abandoned God's word. And here's the tragic thing. Your sons and your daughters will be consumed. Your children. Everything that's most precious to you. And so as a father to to children, you read a verse like that and you think, Lord, the tragedy of, of the Israelites living through this the pain of seeing children taken, that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego taken out as young guys to a foreign land, ripped apart from family, and spiritually, we are finding the powers of darkness going for our kids in this day and age, going after them. And so the challenge to us as God's people is, will you stand on God's word? Because let me tell you, the winds, so Paul speaks about the winds of doctrine and the winds of change, are howling against the walls of God's church. Howling winds, blowing winds, change, change. 2,000 years of the church remaining faithful to God's word. Oh, imperfectly, for sure. And so the challenge we have, um, there are many challenges here. How do we see this? How do you see this book? How do you see God's word? Because this is, the, this is the nature of the deception that comes and it starts right at the very beginning where the evil one says, did God really say that? Did God really say you're not to eat the fruit? God knows that, hey, when you eat it, you'll be like him. And so the evil one 
attacks God's people by undermining God's word, by, by seeking to cause doubt, by seeking to cause God's people to go, maybe God doesn't have what's in my best interests after all. Or maybe I just need to play with God's word a little bit in order to accommodate the type of life that I'm tempted to live here. Jeremiah 15. This is how, this is what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah 15, verse 16. He says, Your words were found, and I ate them. Your words became a delight to me and the joy of my heart. For I bear your name, Lord God of armies. This is how Jeremiah saw God's word. He says, Do you know I saw God's word and I ate it up? In Ezekiel, take the scroll and eat. Oh, and it's like sweet honey to my mouth and to my lips. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, turn this rock into, into bread. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of our God. These things, my friends, are Truths, I know the majority in the room here go, yes, we believe. We believe. We are a people of the word. We are a people committed to God's word. We see this as precious. But the moment we stop speaking this and declaring it and having the courage to do so, we find ourselves slipping into compromise. And so we must recognize estrangement to God comes as we abandoned God's word, as we move away from it and we turn to other things. But Jeremiah said, I delight in your word. This has happened through the centuries and it happened even to Jesus. In John chapter six, we read the following. In verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. A huge crowd had gathered to hear him say these things. It was the day after the feeding of the 5,000. That crowd returns back to Jesus and Jesus says to them, this miracle, this miracle meal that you received, there's something far more significant to it. Yes, you need to eat, but you need to eat something that's going to deal with the hunger of your soul. And he proceeds to give this bread of life sermon and he says, I'm the bread of life, guys. Jesus says, look to me. I'm the one that will satisfy the hunger of your heart. You, you're, you're a stranger to God. You need to eat me in order to find your soul nourished. What was their response? Verse 66 of John 6. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. They left. And so Jesus said to the 12 who remained... You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. God's word becomes a delight when you realize it's all about Jesus. God's word becomes a delight when you realize that through God's word, we find and encounter Jesus. God's word, it's not just, we're not just talking about being booky. It's not like, come on guys, let's just become brilliant readers. There's something more to it than that. It's that in his word, there is truly power. There is power in the word of God. It's sharper than a double-edged sword, separating joint and marrow, revealing the intentions of the heart. God's word comes and it cuts right to the depth of where we are. And so we push God's word away when we don't want its power to change us, where we'd rather remain in darkness. But the word of God comes as a lamp, as a light, to shine and to reveal. And so many found Jesus' words highly offensive, and so they left. But the disciples realized, he can't leave you. As challenging as this is, we can't leave you. Your words are eternal life. I didn't actually fully understand it at that time. They were still very confused. I mean, that sermon, the Bread of Life sermon, was very strange. He said, you've got to eat my flesh and you've got to drink my blood. They were very, very puzzled. (laughs) But they knew there's something in here that is power. And it might be that you're here and you're very, very confused. But don't leave. I, I, th- I think of that crowd that just left Jesus. Disciples even who left him at that point. And I think, oh, what? That's, how sad to walk away from Jesus. Jesus has words of eternal life for us to hear. His words are power to bring us to God. And upon receiving the life of Christ, upon seeing in Jesus Christ forgiveness for sins, hope beyond the grave, a reason to live, a reason to get up in the morning, in seeing Jesus as God and putting our faith in Jesus as God, we find our names written in that book I mentioned a few minutes ago and the power to change everything. The power to change everything. So in Ephesians 2, we read the following. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this 
so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the, by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father so that you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. And we are here today as a church because this is true and this is truly happening around the world. This was all happening, this is in Middle Eastern context. 2,000 years ago, when the disciples were told, you're gonna make disciples of all nations. And we find the promise which God made right back in Genesis to Abraham, when Abraham was told, you'll be the father of many nations. Look at the stars, can you count them? Look at the sand, can you count the grains? Your offspring are gonna be as vast as that. And it was a promise that rested not upon the flesh, but upon the promise and faith in the promise that God had made. Some of you might have Jewish ancestry in this room, but the vast majority of us won't have. But we are Abraham's seed, Abraham's descendants through the promise that God made. What is that promise? The promise really is that a son would be born, a son would come, would live the perfect life, and would step into the sinner's place, becoming their substitute. And that this substitute would be pinned cruelly to a Roman cross where he would be hung up in utter humility bleeding and bruised and broken before the mocking crowd that he would be executed there and not only that, that he would take upon himself the righteous anger of God towards all evil and all shame and all atrocities. He would pay for it all in his death upon the cross. That was why in the garden he bled Drops of blood as he sweat, considering the agony that he was going to face. And boldly and bravely and courageously and obediently, he went forward and endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy set before him. A people who are once far off and foreign, now brought near, reconciled together. One new man in Jesus Christ. His church, the church that he loves. You see, church, for some of you, might be something that you do a few times a month. The church is what Jesus bled and died to have. The church is so precious to him that he went to such depths in order to win her. That's why he calls his church his bride. My bride. Now having taken us from estrangement and having reconciled us through the cross, having established unity with God, it doesn't end there. Because he now says we're to be shepherds. You see, that was the promise. Those who are far off, those who are strangers, those who are foreigners, they will feed your flocks, they will plow your fields, 
they will tend to your vines. This is the exciting thing that then takes place is that God has a mission for us and for you, all of us. And I love how through the Gospels, I, mean, I could have drawn up a long list of examples of this, how we find men and women who were once very, very far away, not only are they loved and receive compassion by Jesus, but he then uses them to go and fulfill his plans and his purposes. So the woman at the well is an example. This woman who was a social outcast, this woman who goes to the well in the middle of the day because she couldn't be near people because of the, the sense of shame that she carried. She goes to the well in the heat of the day. She finds Jesus waiting there. Jesus speaks to her and he says, I've got water for you to drink, living water that wells up to eternal life. And she says, I want this water. Jesus speaks compassionately to her. She realizes that this Jewish man knows her so well. She's like, you're a prophet. Jesus goes on to I'm the Messiah. And then we read this. The woman left her water jar, went into the town, and told the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. And the next thing we find is Jesus interacting with the disciples and, and, and he speaks to them and he says, the fields are white for harvest. He says, they're ready. And it's as if as he looks up and he uses this metaphor for his disciples, the harvest is ready. What does he see? He sees a crowd coming towards him. Where from? The Samaritan village, led by the woman he just met at the well. She brings them to Jesus. And then we read the following Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. She was a stranger. She became a shepherd. She became the first evangelist to lead many. You can think of Mary Madeline. She had seven demons. Those demons were cast out of her. She became the first witness to the resurrection. Or what about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, this despised tax collector who found himself up a tree, estranged, cut off, unknown to Jesus. For he didn't know Jesus. And Jesus goes to him and, he, and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to eat in your house today. And then the next thing that happens, Zacchaeus says to Jesus, I'm going to give half of everything I've got to the poor and I'm going to repay everyone double that which I stole from them. He became a shepherd. Or think of Peter even who denied even knowing Jesus at the point of Jesus being led to the cross. You were with him. You're one of his disciples. What did Peter say? I don't know him. I'm a stranger. I don't know him. And then in John chapter 21, following the resurrection, Jesus gets Peter and he says to him, Peter, do you love me? Then what does he say? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. I don't know him, stranger. Suddenly I'm a shepherd. We could go on and on. And so the, and the point is, don't write yourself off. Yes, 
The gospel teaches and proclaims what Jesus has done to forgive you of your sins. Too many of us stop there, though. And we, we discount ourselves from God using us. But, but the, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus is with his disciples, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to be my witnesses. So here's what, it, here's what this means. If you call Jesus your savior, he calls you his witness. So there is an opportunity that he calls all of us to in order to go and share good news. What's the context? What's the place? What's the opportunity that he's given you to do that? He's calling you to be a shepherd. He's calling you to, to, to plow the fields, to tend to the vines. There's an opportunity that God has prepared for you. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is the work of God among us. And we need one another to encourage and to help to, to see that we are faithful to all that God calls us to do. Why don't we stand? I'm going to invite the band to come and to lead us in a song. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for the way you have drawn us out of our estrangement. I thank you for your patience. I thank you, Lord, that whilst we so often can turn our back on you and whilst your church tragically through centuries has rejected you on so many occasions in your word and it's indeed even happening in our nation today in so many places. Lord, I pray give us the courage to stand on your word to see it as the rock that it is. Lord, I pray for the church in our nation today. Our brothers and sisters found in that book. Lord, where the, the winds of change are howling against the walls of the church, help us to stand firm. Because we recognize, Lord, it's not just about being right in an argument. It's not about that. Your word, Lord, is life. You, Lord Jesus, are the bread of life. What is at stake is the good news of the gospel. The gospel which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first the Jew, then the Gentile. And we have received this good news and it's changed our lives. And Lord, help us never to lose confidence in the gospel to bring change to lives. And may your gospel bring about a great harvest in this land and in this nation. Lord, would you change and transform hearts. Lord, those who are far off, would you bring near. Those who are foreigners and strangers, Lord, you will bring them into your household and you will make them to be your shepherds. And I pray, help us to go from here obediently looking for every opportunity to act as God's shepherds, God's priests, God's ministers. For we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, set aside by you and for your glory. Lord, we love you. Our confidence is in you alone. We worship and adore you. Amen.